Bowbells of London have made this church, St Mary Le Beau in Cheapside, in the heart of the city of London, probably the most famous parish church in the world. Once a week, the rector, the Reverend Joseph McCulloch, holds a dialogue with a celebrated person from any walk of life. Let's go inside now and join Reverend Joseph McCulloch with the hundreds of people who've come to listen to them. Can you hear me? Who can hear me? Nobody over there can hear me. What? Pity. All right. Someone's waved from right out there the other side of the road. In that lively long decade from halfway through the 60s to the end of the 70s, a series of remarkable debates took place in one of London's most celebrated churches. Every Tuesday lunchtime, city workers packed into St Mary Le Beau, giving up their lunch hour to hear and see writers, politicians, actors and television folk in a dialogue with the church's unconventional rector, Joseph McCulloch. I took part in a number of those dialogues, all of which were recorded and are now held in the British Library. What makes them so intriguing is not only the sometimes quirky nature of what is said, but also the chance to hear familiar voices in an unfamiliar setting. Peter Cook, for example, not mocking, but speaking seriously of religion. Margaret Thatcher's there too, as well as Joyce Grenfell, John Betjeman, Yehudi Menuhin, and loads more. The quality of debate which you offer here often far exceeds that down the road in the House of Commons. Thank you. The future of the race... Of, of humanity and of all life is at stake, and that future would be better assured today by renouncing the use of oil altogether and going through a bad patch. It doesn't often happen to me that somebody else says to me what I'm trying to say, especially when he's interrupted me 50 times when I was actually saying it. Now, I know perfectly well what I'm trying to say. I always feel the devil was very hard done by when he was cast out of heaven, actually. We know Lucifer is a terrible loser. He's always going to lose out. He hasn't got half the equipment that God has. <laughs> St Mary Le Beau Church, built by Christopher Wren after the Great Fire of London in 1666, was then devastated by German bombs in 1941. For years afterwards, its future was in doubt. When Joseph McCulloch was appointed rector in 1959, St Mary Le Beau was still only half rebuilt. But the restoration of the church was not his only challenge. There was a problem with his Sunday congregation. There wasn't one. City workers just weren't there at the weekends. So he set about making the church relevant to them by rebuilding the interior with the innovation of two identical pulpits as a setting for public dialogues from which, as he described it, two people might discuss anything under the sun with difference but without inequality. The present rector of St Mary Le Beau, George Bush. I do not know, says the great bell of Beau, uh, is arguably one of the things that, that inspired Joseph McCulloch to create the kind of questioning culture here. Um, you know, he thought it was, it was perfectly reasonable for people to ask questions and to be Christian and to be agnostic about a large number of things. It was completely original in those days. Nowadays, the place is thick with debates and argument, but it was unique at the time. Yes, I mean, I, I think it was quite unique, and he, he had this um, sense, as we understand it, of, of the church engaging with the world on the world's own terms. 
The dialogues began in 1964 and were soon packing them in. You never knew what exactly you would hear. Indeed, the idea was so novel for such conventional times that many speakers challenged Joseph himself about exactly what he was trying to do. Here's Peter Cook. If you believe, as you believe, I don't particularly believe that the actual doctrine of Christianity should be got across, as opposed to the more sort of general miasmic humanist point of view, boiling down to people should be nicer to each other, full stop. Um, if, you, if you have this mission to convert, that I'm absolutely baffled as to how you can do it, because I, I don't. I'd be interested to hear how you would set about doing it, if indeed you want to do it. Well, A, I don't like the whole connotation of being anxious to convert. I'm interested in the truth and finding it. And I don't believe that you can shove it down anybody's throats. But I find that if you're talking with somebody else and one were to take up any aspect of life at all, one could discuss it quite philosophically and openly. And because I am already convinced about Christ should not prevent me from being quite open to what you have to say. And whether you uh, are sold, as it were, upon the fundamental doctrines of Christianity or not, mm. your views on life will be just as interesting to me. And, and in the process of discussion, um, you may become interested in the fact that I have these already uh, original convictions about Christianity. This may interest you or not. But the idea that I'm out to convert anybody else, uh, as it were, to force them into a belief, is, is highly repugnant to me, and I think to the Church. Now this kind of dialogue was something new in the Church of England in those days. Though by the early 60s, the times they were a-changing and a mood of inquiry infecting us all, the Church itself was still pretty traditional and behaviour in Church very respectful. Here's George Bush again, followed by the novelist Margaret Drabble. And of course, the 1960s was an incredibly fascinating time for, for everybody, and, and, and there were um, advances of, uh, of free thinking across a, a whole range of areas of life. Um, but one has to remember that the Church was not really much in the habit of this. I mean, it was in the 1960s um, that the Church condemned premium bonds, so it was still in, uh, 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 tempted to hand down judgments um, about what might now seem to be rather tangential issues. It had been felt that the church was conventional and isolated and there was no crossover at all between the secular society and the religious society. But I think the 60s were quite a religious period um, in that there was a lot of spiritual seeking of sorts that weren't wholly um, approved of by Joseph, but he was interested in them all. And I think that he did try to involve... Um, people outside the church in a way that was quite, quite new. Also, being in the city, I mean, which is, I suppose, the heart of secular capitalism, he may have felt that he had an even more interesting role with his um, daily audience. So who was Joseph McCulloch to take his church in such an interesting direction? I got to know him quite well, and he was far from an orthodox cleric. Behind the indulgent smile he reserved for his more outspoken contributors was a lurking pleasure in defying the orthodoxies of his religion. His was the driving force behind this quietly secular activity. Margaret Drabble and journalist Catherine Whitehorn both knew Joseph well. 
He certainly was a turbulent priest. He was um, a very unexpected kind of priest. And not that I've known many priests in my life, but he was certainly utterly memorable as a physical presence, as a figure in his cassock, which he wore with great style, and um, in his intellectual demeanour, which was very characteristic. I mean, he, wasn't, he was not a subdued and polite vicar. He was a, a flamboyant, theatrical vicar. He was lanky. He was by no means the humble priest of ascetic nature. He liked the good life, and I don't know whether it's fair to say he was arrogant, but he certainly did not suffer unduly from the sin of humility. Um, he, I think, very much thought that he was somebody who should be listened to. And what I think I do remember, and I know other people have said this more, that if he didn't approve of what you were saying, it didn't strike him as a bad idea to interrupt you. you know? Then right. how do you... Now, I'm sure I've got a turn coming, haven't I? I mean, you know, um, I'm, I'm not used to not getting a word in age. <laughs> However, I'm, I'm not used I to find all people. that, I find all that, am I allowed to speak, I'm, I find that both non-historical, it just isn't, I mean you're obviously not a historian, and the second thing you're, you're not is extremely sophisticated, because you're, that was very naive, I thought. He did constantly interrupt people, very often to press his own point of view when what the audience were keen on was what the guest had to say. You know, to do him credit, the kind of people he had doing these were people who would certainly fight their own corner and, and talk him down if necessary. But this is an extraordinary thing to be saying. What right. is the connection between free will and acting independently? <laughs> it is free will that because actually I, I, I don't believe that your free your will is, is, is what we've got. I'm sorry, I don't but this, think this we're as free as you casuistry. think. Hmm? But this is sheer casuistry. It, is not, it doesn't often happen to me that somebody else says to me what I'm trying to say, especially when he's interrupted me 50 times when I was actually saying it. I know perfectly well what I'm trying to say. The earliest dialogues were between churchmen, safe, familiar stuff. Then Joseph began to extend his scope, inviting in speakers from outside the church. Their subject matter was not necessarily religious. Although the speakers, surprised to find themselves in such a setting and in such an empowering place as a pulpit, would be tempted to air their often unorthodox views on matters of belief. Here is Peter Cook again, followed by a dialogue regular, journalist Bernard Levin. We always have to be these creeping, humble creatures who can never hope to understand, but just sort of crawl around thinking of this great purpose which has been worked out, which we can't possibly see, which other people tell us we never will see, but it's all part of an enormous pattern and we should feel grateful for it. I think God emerges throughout history as a rather, well, he's not easily likable. Um, his personality agree. is a very hard one to sympathize with in any way because we you can say well, well, we're just humans then all you're going to get from us is human responses how can we be expected to um, understand comprehend somebody who is unwilling to make the first step in our direction 
I don't think we are expected to comprehend. We are. We, we are. Well, I don't think perhaps so. not now, but uh, the church has continuously expected us to comprehend our position as humble worms who crawl over the face of the earth for 70 years and then depart. I mean, that's been our role in life, we've been told. And we can never hope, never hope to understand what the great purpose is, which leads a lot of people to think there isn't a purpose at all. We want to know why we're here. We want to know what life is about, etc. It's a natural inquiry to make, and it is a naturally disappointing thing if we have no answer to it or can find no answer. I come more and more to thinking that that question is, a, in fact, a waste of time. Since we cannot, in fact, know the answer to questions as cosmically large as that, why are we here, what is the universe for, where are we going, etc., then what we have to concentrate on is not the port that we're going to, because we can never know that, but the voyage itself. Now, Bernard, uh, you remind me of a bishop. I remind you of a bishop? Yeah. <laughs> I've never had anything like that said to me before. Not in a church, at any rate. And in 1968, David Frost made an appearance in the pulpit. Clearly uncomfortable as an interviewee, he soon reverted to a more familiar role. I would say that I dislike the church for the very human things, the failures it shows. But I know they're human failures, and I know the love of God is greater than our heart, and even if our heart condemns us, we can have confidence towards God. Now, therefore, I go on in the church, hopeful and so on. Now you stand outside it and say this poor blooming institution is no use at all to anybody. Is that right? Not remotely what I said. Oh, good. No. I mean, no, what I said was, the last remark was that I said that those of us who stand not four square within the church, but outside the church, gaze at the church and demand of it two things that it's very unfair of us to demand. The church on the one hand has been associated with unchanging truth. On the other hand, it realises it's got to sort of, in some way, come to terms with modern life. But on the other hand, the more it comes to terms with modern life, the more it disturbs the people who believe it should be totally unchanging. This is just surely untrue and provably so. The church has never at any stage been uh, uh, identified with unchanging truth. The church Are there no unchanging truths that the church promulgates? The church... Is the, crucifixion an, unchanging, is the crucifixion an unchanging truth? Yes. The resurrection... Yes. The virgin birth? No. Any others? Why not? Why, oh, is, the, the why is the virgin birth optional and the resurrection? The virgin birth... <laughs> well, do you want the answer? Yes. The virgin birth is optional because it has never at any stage been held in Christian history as an essential part of the faith of the Christian. Oh, Whereas the resurrection is the linchpin which if you took it out, there'd be no Christian gospel and there'd be no Christian church. It was unusual in those days to see celebrities holding forth in person and they themselves were often overawed by what might be expected of them. So they spoke of what they knew, their work, their skills as actors and performers. Here's Sheila Hancock. But first, an apprehensive Dennis Norden. I can remember the feeling of being in a pulpit place I never expected to be, never wanted to be, and was, was um, very overawed by being put in that position. Did you feel that you were in a position of a preacher? 
all the time, all the time, I had to stop myself from sort of beaming benevolently down as I uttered these pompous truisms, you know, about comedy. The only people who think that humour ever achieves anything are court jesters. They're out of work, aren't they? The court jesters of today are the kept iconoclasts of the BBC, the snakes with the contented venom, in other words, the people whom the establishment figures allow to say rude things because of their privileged position. I would say that humour is used as an excuse today not to actually get up and do anything. I was right outside my territory, and I don't know why now, looking back on it, I don't remember it with more pleasure, but um, I think it's because I was so scared stiff all the way through. I remember being asked by Joseph whether I would do it and being absolutely terrified. I was an atheist, an absolute out-and-out -out atheist at that time. I've slightly changed since then, but, but the whole thing seemed so alarming. Um, but, you know, I'm always one for a challenge, so <laughs> I said yes. I remember even with my nerves being very moved by the fact that people were coming in in their lunch hour for a discussion and I knew that he'd had all sorts of eminent people. I mean, I was just a silly actress, but they had obviously talked quite seriously and profoundly about many, many subjects and these people were flocking in. Yes, I mean, I find life a constant mystery. I find it a mystery to find myself here. Um, <laughs> No mystery about that. Yeah. No, I'm totally mystified by life. I, yeah. mean, I will, until the day I die, be mystified, which is another reason why I find it embarrassing to be here, because um, looking down the list of people when you asked me to come, I was so horrified, because they all seemed so people that were so sure of what they believed in. I'm not sure... Oh, no, I have mostly people who don't know what they believe Well, you've had Lord Longford? But everybody always seems to be more sure of themselves than I am. I mean, you know, I, I always... I mean, I'm the sort of person that starts an argument being... I have a great friend, Frankie Howard, who's one of my greatest friends, and argues till he's falling about, you know, and he... And, and we have arguments where we both start one end of an argument and we always end up totally reversed. <laughs> it's shouting and raving at one another and we suddenly say, hey, wait a minute, you said that. I have another go. <laughs> I mean, that's the sort of... Well, Frankie Howard, I once asked to do a dialogue here, and I got a letter saying, it's no good, you know. I really am nothing but a pretty face. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the fact that not many people heard it was a bonus, really, it, because people could talk in a very relaxed way. It wasn't going to be televised, it wasn't going to be on radio, and hopefully it wasn't even going to be reported. I mean, that would be difficult nowadays, because if you said anything, it would be picked up by a gossip column. But somehow those two pulpits and that church and that audience permitted you to be very honest. I, I must tell you that a lot of my life I have considered wasted by working in trivial comedy. I really have. I mean, I am a person who cares quite a lot about people. And I've always thought, oh, I should be working in welfare work or doing this, that and the other. Until the last three years, when I've had quite a lot of um, nastiness in my own life. And only then have I appreciated comedy, because 
It's been such a release to me. I mean, I can't tell you what the Morecambe and Wise show meant to me when my husband was ill, when we could laugh together. And, and suddenly I've realized the value of it in my own life. And judging by some letters I received, presumably other people realize the value of it. It is an enormous escape valve, isn't it? Yeah. If you can laugh at the most tragic moments in your life, it helps enormously, I think. Humor was Peter Cook's nature but not, in his view, much in evidence in the church. Do you think there are many, many vicars up and down the land who, given a chance and the right opportunity, could get on television and entertain us and inform us? Well, what do makes entertainment? Do you think there is this untapped talent there to draw upon? Or are, perhaps, um, the majority of them unentertaining? And if so, why? Because most human beings are very entertaining if you get to know them. It is generally supposed that piety and wit are impossible to marry. This is a modern superstition. The wittiest people I've ever known in my life have been parsons. With all respect to you, sir. Um, I could could keep you happy for hours with, with the entertainment I've had from my fellow parsons. Exactly, yes. And most of the wits of our time, if you like to go through history, have been Parsons. Well, this is a thing which um, never comes across today. I don't know if it ever did come across. For example, if you take Jesus, uh, one of the things he was was a great humorist and wit. You never think of that at all. You think uh, there's this uh, nail to the cross and everything else. You never think of the, when you read the text, of how witty his replies were. You go to church and there you are, uh, confronted by a solemnity that most people find obnoxious. I mean, I'd prefer it. I don't know whether it was medieval times or whatever, when there were chickens and goats about the place, and people used to go to the church to meet each other, and a lot of whispering and gossiping went on. It was the centre of society. But uh, you don't get that now. And I think most people feel cut off. The churches I've been to, in any case, you get the distinct impression that the man who is conducting the service is very much aware of his own importance. And um, Well, have you noticed with, uh, what a pulpit does to you? Yes, ah. <laughs> Judy Dench, in her dialogue, talked of how actors are perceived by others. And Eileen Atkins was shrewdly aware of Joseph's own intentions. You know, people often say uh, to me, uh, do you ever, are you ever a person of yourself? Are you, is there a person at all of, your, of yourself or, or do you find that you act at home? And, and my answer is always that if you spend your entire career and you give up your time to acting other people and acting other people's emotions and trying to hold a mirror up to nature, then, then the relief of stopping, you become very, very much a person, a private person of yourself. You've got to act when you get home. A lot of people think this. And a lot of people think if you're having a row, then you're, you know, so much of one's life. I mean, the most important thing I think about, about acting is being able to observe what, what, how people react to certain things. Therefore, uh, people think that if you are an actress and you are in the middle of a real row, you are actually not participating in that row. You are out, looking back and seeing how the row is going. Mm. He had a very clever agenda behind it, which was that all the world's a stage. 
his point was there is someone watching you on this stage which is the earth and it's probably God. He gently led me to what he wanted me to say which I never quite said um, because I didn't agree with it but and I was too polite to come out and say firmly I know where you're leading. Supposing you're on the stage and yes. you know there's nobody in the theatre. Yes. Do you think you'd give as good a performance uh, as the first night when you know perfectly well the theatre's full? I'd try to, but it would be awfully difficult. It would be... You've, you've actually, you've absolutely hit on the thing that most worries me all the time. Because I think that one should, I think as an actress, I should be able to always give of my best, no matter, even if no one is watching. So I think that that seems sort of pointless. And uh, uh, in the same way I feel about life, one ought to be able to always do what you feel should be done without an audience. But... Uh, it's much better if you think there's an audience there, and it's much more difficult to do one without one. With writers and journalists, Joseph tended to look at wider moral questions and contemporary subjects. Catherine Whitehorn. They tended to have large general titles so that we could wander around the subject as much as we liked. Things like social snobbery or money and greed. I remember getting very head up about that. I always do. And Did that go down well in the city? Well... I think the people who came to those, I guess that they would be very often not the city bankers, the chaps, but their secretaries um, in for a quiet, warm sandwich or whatever, and they would probably, well, I think they'd be more likely to agree with me than not. Word quickly spread that Tuesday lunchtimes were becoming a regular date. People gave up their hour-long break, choked back a sandwich in 20 minutes or so, to spend 40 minutes at the dialogues. Yes, I found it very stimulating and interesting. I think to come out from lunchtime in an office and to come in and to hear uh, such a provocative discussion is you know, really worthwhile. I think it's a marvellous series. Do you find that these discussions will draw people back to church? Um, do you think that you, yes. there's any religious side to it? Yes, I do, because I think that the angle that's put over here is a much more uh, wide approach than one normally would get. Mm -hmm and therefore I think it would encourage one to return to church, definitely. I think also the lovely audience that I talked about had a, had a big effect on you. When you saw all these office workers that were giving up their lunch hour to come to this thing, you felt that you, you owed them an honesty. And also, I suppose, why they were so surprising was that the, the press wasn't poking around in people's private lives to quite such an extent. It was a, a pre-Paxman age, wasn't it? People were not used to seeing famous people close up, let alone in a church. And, you know, uh, enormous numbers of people um, came, as you probably remember. There are photographs of the place with um, standing room only. And at one stage, they were even distributing and selling tickets to control people's access. What do you think of this idea? I think it's a very good idea. It might open people's minds a little more. In what way? Well, they live in a fog, and so the fog clears a little better. Mm. Thank you very much. Thank you. Those views are from a television programme of a 1968 dialogue with Jonathan Miller. Here's an excerpt from that dialogue, followed by an interview with Miller himself, snatched at the end of the dialogue. I, mean, I really don't like going away very much. Um, I like to stay in England, um, because I believe that very small adjustments of one's physical position 
can produce absolutely massive changes in one's mental attitude. Tell me, are you like Malcolm Mugridge won't sleep away from his own bed? By and large, I don't like, I don't like taking very large excursions to glamorous or exotic places. Um, I find the experience of the oddness of the world, one can attend to the essential, indelible oddness of the world, much more when one's actually got the minimal, uh, the minimal of distraction. If, the, if there's a great sort of din of cha-cha-cha and exotic palm trees and um, huge uh, surf breaking, um, one is distracted from the peculiarity of actually being alive at all, which one gets really much more strongly on the Bakerloo line. <laughs> It's amazing how we chime together, Jonathan. I mean, uh, what you're really saying, if I may, if I may suggest it, um, is that um, every darn thing's a miracle, so why start having special miracles? I think that there are certain very um, minor adjustments of one's consciousness that one can make, which will produce a t tremendous, overwhelming sense of the, of, the, of the novelty of it all, a sense of jamais vu, of never having seen it before, and of it shining with a strange sort of a uh, pristine uh, whiteness uh, and uh, and all, or if, you, if you like, holiness or whatever. Um, now these come often by very small adjustments. I mean, I find that, for example, sudden changes of weather in the street will produce this. A sudden, very sudden shower of rain will produce it. Or the thing which I most enjoy doing, and this is an example of foreign travel to a small extent, I like going to a city, perhaps. Ooh, 15, 20 miles outside London, or perhaps 100 miles outside London, and arriving there at, say, 5 in the afternoon, um, unknown in the city, and having no friends there, and stepping out of the station. And at that moment when you step out of the station, the, the, the hurrying of people who are going to and from engagements and appointments, um, which are of that city, and nothing to do with one's own city, suddenly produces a sense of transparency in oneself, where you see the world for the first time, as it were. What do you feel, though, about... Um the, the rector's attempts to keep this church alive and to have these dialogues here because he feels that a city church might well die without a sort of residential um, community around. Well, I think that it's, it's one of the more acceptable uh, and decent ways of making religion uh, attractive and, uh, uh, and alive in, in modern life. Mm. To talk about matters of public concern and of, of uh, personal and human interest seems to be, to be a way of bringing religion into some sort of uh, liveliness again. I went back to St Mary Le Beau with Margaret Drabble and we reminisced about how the day of a dialogue would go. First, up in the lift to the McCulloch's flat, atop the church, a snug little eerie next to the bell tower that hardly anyone knew was there. Here, over a glass of sherry, we would ruminate about the subject of the dialogue, then descend to take our places in opposing pulpits. After the dialogue, back up to the flat for a relaxing and a very congenial lunch. It was good to remember. You can hear how spacious it is, can't you? Yes. Now, I'm taking in more visually than I did when I appeared in the pulpit, because in the pulpit you're sort of um, elevated and, and frightened, whereas now I feel I can look around more easily. Now, I think you must make a, a, an appearance in the pulpit. And, and tell me how it felt and how it feels now. Okay, I'll have a go. I'll have a go. I'll, I'll ascend the stairs, which um, is not something. It's very rare that one actually has a chance to go up into a pulpit. Occasionally, reading at a memorial service is as near as one gets. 
But here, the strange thing was that it wasn't meant to be a very solemn occasion. It was meant to be a kind of interchange of views. But I now see that the other pulpit is a long way away, which means that it was very theatrical. You had to project, you had to speak across. It, wasn't an, it could never be an intimate conversation, although it was quite often, in my case, rambling. It wasn't intimate. There was a sort of sense of formality. And the, the congregation is quite a long way below. It's a very unusual relationship to the other people in the building. Good. Yeah. Now we must go up to... We take the path that we took before, when we used to arrive. Now this is, must have been where... We used to arrive here, didn't we? Yes. Now we used to take a lift. A lift. Now where, the lift must have been here, I think. Or in, is there a stairwell, a lift well there? Well, we have to go up the stairs now, which is quite a long climb. Yes, well, well off we go. I remember, I think I remember the skyline, which we must be approaching. And, um, coming up here in the lift, in a feeling of mixed anticipation and alarm. Ah, oh, yes. Goodness me. Oh, yes. yes. Is that how you remember? Yes, it's coming back to me. Yes, it is. Yes, yeah, beautiful. I think he sometimes m felt he'd missed his calling and that he should have been either in the theatre or in politics or in, in public life more directly than he was as a member of the church. I think that's true. He was a... Um he liked appearing in public. He was also um, very interested in writing. I mean, I think he did write himself. I know he did write himself. And so the literary life attracted him, but the theatre life also attracted him. Showbiz attracted him very much. He was a great networker. He certainly was, long before the word was invented. He knew everybody, and he, was, he wouldn't take no for an answer. I mean, he did actually bully me terribly. And I kept saying, look, I'm really, really busy. I've got these little children. I've got to collect them from school. I can't do this and I can't do that. He paid no attention to my plaintive bleats and I would find myself there to, on more occasions than I had remembered until checking the archives. I was told I had done several dialogues, more than I'd thought. It was interesting that, his capacity to bully you while appearing genial. Yes, he had a will of iron, I think. Um, but, of course, it was all also an attractive occasion because he made it very interesting to come here. He got publicity and coverage so that it, you know, your name went forth. But also, he managed always to give you a very comfortable time here, in his home here. And it was somehow mystically intriguing coming to a sort of secular place on top of the church and having sherry and then lunch it was a and betty was a wonderful woman and meeting her was always a great delight so there was there was a very strong attraction in coming here which he knew which he had to offset the alarm of standing in a pulpit as the 1960s got into their stride it was clear the younger generation was speaking of new freedoms women were demanding their liberation and then in the mid-1970s we hit the first of the oil crises in every case, the dialogues were topical, picking their Tuesday subjects from the headlines of the day. Here's Catherine Whitehorn's advice for what was then a brand new feeling, widespread despondency at the economic recession. I think everybody is anxious, or they're trying very hard not to be. And if they're managing not to be anxious, 
it's burying their head in the sand, really. I think there's a, a way in which we've all thought that everything could be solved by more of something. You suddenly remember that it isn't everybody who's always thought that it would be better if you had more. I mean, didn't the Greeks actually have a word for the getting of more, which they regarded as a rather low-grade activity? And I think a lot of what we mind about, we mind about in relation to the next person along. And you know the way we're always being told that they had such a much better spirit in the 30s. Well, I don't know whether they all did, but I'm sure that for some people, being hard up didn't hit them the way it hits people today because everybody around them was in the same boat. And they didn't feel that it was any sort of shame in not having whatever it was. Actresses Joyce Grenfell and Dame Sybil Thorndike commanded the respect due to age. Here they muse on the nature of youth. The problem today is that there is apparently so much freedom that people don't know where they are. They're dizzy with freedom. And I think that... It's a wonderful phrase, dizzy with freedom. It's a very good description of the... Mine own. Age, your own. <laughs> well, be I've never thought of it before. It's not bad. <laughs> but, 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 Joseph, um, the interesting thing is that we make our own prison walls, don't we? And uh, young people who are against what they call convention are, in fact, hemmed in by a whole barricade of conventions of their own devising. They look alike, dress alike, think alike, and don't like to be different from the others. And as a rule, look as scruffy as each other. No, no, that's not kind. <laughs> I think some look beautiful. However, they, they might equally but they be But they make their own, we make our own prisons. Yeah. And, it and is the great thing is there's no lock on that prison door. That's a but you have thing. to discover what you are, like Goethe said. Mm. And I believe you are a spiritual entity which can only be seen as you express it. I think we are living in one of the most exciting and thrilling times that anybody could live in. We have had a lot of old-fashioned uh, ideas knocked out of us and knocked out of us, curiously enough, by a lot of the young people. And I think the young people of today are showing us something quite splendid. Back before the mid-70s oil crisis struck, violinist Yehudi Menuhin had a brilliant insight into what lay ahead and what we should do about it, a prophetic view that was long before its time. It's likely the audience had never heard such ideas before. The future of the race of, of humanity and of all life is at stake, and that future would be better assured today by renouncing the use of oil altogether and going through a bad patch of a few years, perhaps 10 years, 15 years, until uh, we evolve that form of power and locomotion which will be absolutely compatible with life. And there is plenty that exists. Um, electricity, steam, earth, uh, heat from the center of the earth, the sun, the, rain, the winds, the tides, there's, there's plenty of power about. But uh, again, we are led 
merely by uh, habit, like some stupid creature that has been conditioned uh, to one reaction, sort of Pavlov reflex. And we're all after oil. I think man at the moment is the fool of the universe. Would you agree? Yes, very much so. And I would like also to say that not woman. <laughs> oh, I, I said that man always embraces woman. Well, I, I, would, I would like to clear woman of, of some of, 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 the, um, of the sins of man. Man has to justify his existence because actually, in truth, he is disposable for the most part. And uh, he is uh, dispensable with. And um, he has to justify it by creating or making believe he creates um, uh, great things or memorable events. Man has done extraordinary things and beautiful things in the past, but he's a dangerous animal because he will often uh, try to justify his existence over-justified. I think he should just accept the fact that he is sometimes not really quite necessary and be modest about it. McCulloch was both fascinated and made uneasy by the changing role of women in society. Here's Margaret Drabble on how she thought women were coping with their changing role. Then Catherine Whitehorn on how Joseph viewed women. I think that what afflicts young people very much today is the feeling that it's not necessary. It used to be necessary. A woman used to feel she had to do it and that this was her only life. And now we are being told we are free, and we seem to be free. We are educated. Many of us can earn our own livings. We are apparently independent. And therefore, the feeling of, of constraint is all the much worse, because it has no sense of justification behind it. If one, said, if one could say to oneself, this is the right thing I am doing, and everyone says so, and I say so, and everyone knows I've got to do it and put up with it, then one would feel at least a sense of virtue. But as it is, post-D.H. Lawrence, one feels one has no right to sit back and say, I'm going to lead my life on these terms. Can you remember what sort of subjects you discussed? I think we discussed contemporary society and social mores and um, what young married women were up to these days, which <laughs> Joseph was interested in. <laughs> Let me put it this way, he might have thought that women were equal to men, but I doubt if he thought that any one woman was equal to Joseph McCulloch. He got him into a fine old spat with Jermaine Greer. <laughs> well, I wish I'd heard that. I think at this point you're willfully misunderstanding me. No. Because the point is simply this, that one cannot blame other people for one's own actions. You cannot say... To some extent say, one could. I have no right to abjure my free will. It is my curse and my blessing. And what troubles me... But you haven't defined it. I you don't merely have, have said it. that you are allowed, and like the rest of us, within a very limited field, to act independently. No, but whatever you are. do will affect other people. So you're not free. If I you are aware at all... I doubt whether masturbating affects other people. I may very well decide not to do it. Though. Well, it make you into a certain sort of person. Would it indeed? Well, that's nonsense for a start. Wouldn't not it make a bit, me do not anything? Not a bit. Whatever you do to yourself, you do to others. I should be so lucky. And the, and... <laughs> 
It had been an uncharacteristically bad-tempered dialogue, and Joseph apologised the next day in The Times. Sir, The Times Diary today publishes a very severe criticism of my hectoring performance in yesterday's dialogue with Dr. Germaine Greer at St. Mary Le Beau. Unfortunately, the criticism was entirely justified and could rightly have been more severe. I can offer no adequate excuse or explanation. It was certainly not the fault of my guest, who played her part admirably. Among Joseph's most prized guests were leading politicians of the day. Joseph would lure them away from the House of Commons for a dialogue that often explored the moral dimensions of the political life. MPs were among the most fluent and opinionated, quite at home preaching from the pulpit, all that is except for the future Prime Minister, James Callaghan, who was clearly ill at ease. Are we as bad as they're now saying we are? Are we fundamentally changed as a people? Am I supposed to answer that? <laughs> uh, well, let me say to begin with, just to try to invite a little sympathy, that I don't think I've ever felt as nervous before in standing up in a pulpit. You'll have to use more voice, by the way. More voice? Yeah. Good. But, um, uh, I suppose politicians preach, but certainly not in elevated pulpits like this. And uh, I would have thought with respect that you might have bowed me an easy one uh, f for the first question. His Labour colleague Richard Crossman was much more assured, discussing truth in politics. I was brought up in a family where truth was regarded as the greatest virtue or saying what you really meant or thinking it. I I've come to learn in later life that it's a very self-indulgent idea because you can hurt people a lot and you can get a habit of hurting people by saying the truth. But, of course, when you get to politics, you know perfectly well that, though you must say the truth, you can, ne you can never say all the truth until you've retired, as I have. <laughs> now, I, I have to explain this to you, that uh, politicians with this curious quirk of a passion for truth are relatively rare, and they are, in a sense, amateur politicians. Uh, I'm only half a politician. I'm at least half an Oxford Don still. Who's, who made his living by truth and by argument and by discussion and by following the argument to the bitter end. And that kind of politician is always, is never trusted wholly by his colleagues. If you put truth as the highest virtue, you won't be a very successful politician in Anglo-Saxon countries. Or, or a clergyman, either. Oh, you could, no, you couldn't possibly be a clergyman. <laughs> no. I mean, I'm glad we agree about something. Pra practically no public figure could do this. And what you have to do is to think that goodness, say, counts for as much as truth. In 1969, Margaret Thatcher was a junior member of the Shadow Cabinet and quite confident discussing morality in politics. There is, I accept, a more permissive society and in the way it's the more dangerous now than it ever would have been, I think, in the 30s. Because, you know, to have time and money and to be young all at the same time requires a very much greater degree of responsibility than we ever had when we were younger. Well, I wonder how we would have reacted had we had time and money 
uh, and this general atmosphere that we have now, it does require a very much higher caliber personal approach than we ever had to have in our younger days. But is the politician really concerned with the quality of life that people are living? Politics, we have to some extent two things. The, look, if you do this, I'll pass a law which penalizes you because it's against the interests of other people. We can do the welfare thing which will save people uh, and keep them in existence in order to give them an opportunity to live. But you can't, in fact, inspire a purpose of living. That must come from something which we all recognise is very much deeper. Enoch Powell came to St Mary Le Beau just months after making the infamous Rivers of Blood speech. Feelings were still running high. 500 people packed out the church and six plain-clothed policemen stood outside. Inevitably, the subject was immigration. But can I ask a personal question? Yes, sir. Do you welcome streams of other traditions, races and so on uh, in to this particular amalgam called the United Kingdom? I must answer you qualitatively. If they are small, relatively, yes. If they are great, relatively, no. The same answer, no, as is given by every other nation in its own circumstances on the face of the earth. McCulloch not only invited politicians, but also trade unionists. Len Murray was the leader of the TUC, and sometimes it was the most unexpected interviewees who turned the tables on Joseph. Can I ask you a question? Since it's a dialogue, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it's frightfully you... infradig for me to be asked a question. Go on, sorry. Do you work for a living? <laughs> no, I have a living to work. Yes, you have. Rector, you're extraordinarily lucky. I am, I know. So am I. We both have occupations which give us great satisfaction. Whereas most people who work, whether it's on a track at Longbridge or in many offices here in the city of London, really have got boring jobs which they would liefer not be doing if they could possibly, possibly do it. And um, yet the irony of it is that Typically, the people who have the most interesting jobs in this world. Any managing directors here? Oh, I have no, no doubt at all. People who have the most interesting jobs, by and large, with the exception of you and me, get paid a lot more than the people who have boring jobs. Now, this seems to me to be totally wrong and totally immoral. In my book, you know, when we got to the Neo-New Testament economics, the people with the least interesting jobs will get the most money. And the people with the most interesting jobs will get the least. Not all the dialogues were conducted by Joseph McCulloch. When the guests were churchmen, I would sometimes stand in for him. This is a dialogue from 1974 led by John Betjeman, discussing with novelist Margaret Lane how they came to their love of poetry. We started to like it through nursery rhymes. And I still am haunted with a sense of terror which is always very strong when one is small and grows, I think, with life by a thing, I don't know whether you learned it, 
A man of words but not of deeds is like a garden full of weeds and when the weeds begin to grow it's like a garden full of snow and when the snow begins to fall it's like a bird upon the wall and when the bird away does fly it's like an eagle in the sky and when the sky begins to roar it's like a lion at your door and when your door begins to crack it's like a stick across your back and when your back begins to smart it's like a penknife in your heart and when your heart begins to bleed then you are dead 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 indeed it it terrified me what is joseph's legacy in this day and age the tradition of dialogue has continued to be associated with this church when i first came here six years ago um, actually, a lot of people in the city didn't say, oh, that's the church with the famous bells, which is probably what most people across the world would say, but is that the church where they do the dialogues? Do you know that I was married here for the second, it was my second marriage, and I had thought that no church would allow me to be married again in, in, uh, at the altar with the Church of England service. And I mentioned as much to Joseph, and who said, oh, don't worry, I'll do it. And I said to Joseph... I didn't think you were allowed to. He said, don't you worry about that. Well, that seems to me the measure of the man. <laughs> and that, of course, is now all allowed. I had the impression that Joseph was slightly bending the rules and taking great pleasure in doing so. Yes. I mean, he certainly was bending the rules, and uh, increasingly in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, individual clergy did do so. Dialogues came to an end in 1979. They had run throughout 15 years when society was changing fast. They had aired new concepts and disagreements and covered every topic current in the culture of the times. They had been a great arena of ideas. They had stirred things up and given great pleasure to many people, including, of course, those who had contributed. I think people always want to talk about things and I just wish something like this was happening now. It's a wonderful safety valve. We should use our churches for that sort of thing. I mean, rather than just using them for a service on Sunday, it seems a terrible waste of, of some of our most beautiful buildings that survived the war. I really wish there was the equivalent now. I think it was quite unique. It was a very good idea. Um, it was obviously liked in the neighbourhood. It was great fun and it got a lot of different opinions floated around and discussed and you would normally get in a church so for that you know 100 percent marvelous and the dialogue's lasting triumph was to get unexpected people saying unexpected things the last word goes to peter cook i think most modern men still vaguely think they're going to hell i i'm sure when i reach the age i mean sudden death doesn't bother me cars and flower pots falling on my head and anything like that doesn't really upset me, but it's the creeping up towards it very gradually that's going to worry me. And round about 79, I'll be having a few second thoughts. <laughs> and I'll certainly be hedging my bets. And I'll know while I'm hedging my bets that the fact that I'm hedging my bets makes the bets invalid. And it's no good my saying at 79, oh, well, yes, of course, I always have. And now I look again. <laughs> 
of course it's true, my goodness, I, this chapter is very convincing. And all the time I think, yeah, you can see through that. <laughs> Get away with that rubbish. He's all seeing, mate. He knows what's going on. Should have thought of that when you were 29, done a bit more good. <laughs> well, the unfortunate thing is that our time's up, as you know. We've all got to go back to work. Um, I couldn't help thinking as he finished that uh, I'd rather go to hell with Peter Cook than to heaven with the Archbishop of Chancellor. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a day. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.